Welcome to Eurodell University, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, the Federal Reserve announced that they're going to accelerate the deceleration of their QE program. And who would you rather talk to about that than Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners? Jeff, big news or not really big news? Depends on your perspective, right, Emil? I mean, for some people, this is gargantuan. This is momentous. It's humongous. This is the biggest thing ever until the Fed does something else, of course. We're supposed to believe the Fed is the center of the entire universe, not just the monetary universe or the center of the financial system or the economy, but the center of everybody's life. It's the Fed. It's the Fed, the Fed, the Fed, the Fed. So the fact that it's announcing some change in its program, whatever program setting that might be, we're supposed to believe this is the biggest thing in our lives and we better pay close attention to it or actually not pay close attention to it, just be very happy and very, very optimistic that Jay Powell has got us covered with his powerful, omniscient, all-inclusive toolkit. So taper, it's it's something huge, even though maybe most people don't really know what it is. And the thing is, is that they're changing their policy very quickly. You know, just a while ago, a month or so, when was it, October or so, they said, we're going to taper. And then now just a little bit of time has passed and they said, we're going to taper harder and faster. And it seems like it's only being driven by two inputs, two variables. The unemployment rate is low and the consumer price index year over year change is high. Is that it, Jeff? Is that this incredible institution with a thousand PhDs in the matter of a few weeks got scared by two variables and they're trying to change this huge monetary ship. They're trying to turn it on a dime just because of those two variables. Or is there something else that's instigating this change? No, it's funny how you said that monetary ship, because really we're talking about inflation. And as the people who have seen our show know, I have a bug about using the term inflation because to me, and I think correctly, inflation means money. As Milton Friedman said a long time ago, as history has shown time and time again, every place around the world, real inflation is a monetary phenomenon. And we think of that, not not only consumer prices as inflation, but also the Federal Reserve as a central bank, therefore the central monetary agency. So looking at this from the standpoint of how we should be looking at it, which is the monetary system, inflation, central banking, you have to wonder why wouldn't the Fed just say, is there too much money? Or is there not too much money? Case closed. If there's not too much money, the Fed doesn't need to do anything because the money supplies match to demand and everything's hunky-dory. If there is too much money, then that's the answer to everyone's question. Oh, sorry, we printed too much money. We're going to restrict the money. We're going to restrict the money supply a little bit, cut it back so that we don't have any runaway inflation. And the funny thing is, This QE taper makes it sound like that's exactly what the Fed is doing. The Fed is saying, oh, consumer prices have risen. We're printing X, you know, 120 billion a month in bank reserves. So we're going to cut back the pace of our addition to the money supply. So it really does sound like the Fed is making a monetary judgment about consumer prices and adjusting its policy accordingly. But that's not what's going on. As you just said, Emil, the Fed is basing its QE purchase pace on completely different variables. It's based on the CPI, which is consumer prices, again, which sounds like it should be inflation, 
But as we've said many times on the show, and as we've demonstrated many times on the show through history, sometimes consumer prices rise for reasons that have nothing to do with money supply. So the fact that the CPI is a partial guide, okay, maybe that's money, but maybe it's something else. And then the other thing that you mentioned, of course, is the unemployment rate. You know, that's again, it sounds like there should be some role for the unemployment rate here because as we've been taught in economics class from the very beginning, the Phillips curve, tight labor markets leads to a wage spiral, all this other thing. So these things sound like they should be involved in the inflation consideration, or at least the inflation thought process of the central bank. But by and large, what the Fed is really doing is saying, we're not really sure how the consumer price has gone up. Because remember, we said it was transitory all year. Now all of a sudden we're changing our tune. And one of the reasons we're changing our tune is because the unemployment rate has gone lower even though we know the unemployment rate has fooled us not once but twice, maybe even three times over the last couple of years. So it's not as straightforward as it is sounds. And there's not really any money in the monetary policy. It's all about trying to figure out what to do in lieu of being able to understand the monetary system. And it's not just Milton Friedman who made the connection between inflation and money. In some of your writings recently, you reminded us Copernicus, Newton, you know, maybe they knew a few things that maybe they've been accomplishing something even more impressive than a Nobel Prize in economics, if that doesn't twirl your tassels with Friedman. So there is something to it. We've made our case before that the money supply that we see is not really the entire money supply. And that's where the confusion comes from. People say, well, money supply and inflation, but they're not looking at the whole euro dollar system. It is, you know, and it's not just like arc, it's not just public confusion, right? I mean, what you just said is the entire point. It's the, the Federal Reserve knows exactly what we're talking about here. They know they can't interpret the monetary system because they have no idea how to. That's the dirty little secret in all of this. The Fed doesn't want people to realize it's not really a central bank. It doesn't do money and it hasn't for decades. So in lieu of being able to do that, which I mean, again, it sounds really simple. Is there too much money or is there not too much money? And the funny thing is, we really do have the tools to tell us what's really going on in the monetary system, but the Fed can't use those tools because then to do so would be to admit publicly that it's not a central bank. So it's kind of boxed in. And because it's boxed in not doing money, it has tried time and time again to sort out some kind of bypass or workaround from that monetary blind spot. And so it's used the unemployment rate, it's used job openings, you know, Janet Yellen's 2014 famous or infamous dashboard, all of these things that's supposed to tell her about inflation pressures. It only led the Fed astray time and again. And you think about, you know, not just 2014 and 2015, but then Jay Powell in 2018 and turning into 2019. And again, what really should be a simple monetary thing has become a very complex and convoluted sort of econometric processing because the central bank isn't a central bank. Well, if you're not lucky, no, what is that? I used to play cards and I was told that if you're lucky in cards, you're not lucky in love. And if, and of course, that's the whole other <laughs> subject. It's a very sad one for me. But the point I wanted to make is that we can make a similar analogy that if you're not lucky in monetary, or if you're not good at monetary policy, you might be lucky in public relations. Because it seems to me that inflation is rolling over, Jeff. So going forward, we will be getting smaller rates of year-over-year changes in consumer prices. And it coincides perfectly with the taper. And they'll be able to say, see, we made less money available. Therefore, inflation rates were lower. It'll be perfect. They, 
they've fallen ass backwards into good monetary policy, good public relations, at least. Well, you could make the same case about 2019, but it didn't kind of work out that way. I mean, that's what it sounded like, right? Because the Fed was raising rates throughout 2018, saying inflation is going to get out of control. The labor market's really tight. Then they raised rates and it's like, okay, the inflation didn't happen. The labor market continued to look tight, at least by the unemployment rate. But nobody said, hey, good job, Jay Powell. You choked off inflation before it started because by the time we got to the middle of 2019, the economic situation had gone so far the other direction, he was actually cutting rates. So it wasn't like he could sit back and say, see, we did a great job. The economy's fine. Everything's good. Inflation's low. We stopped the inflation monster before it got out of control. What ended up happening instead was, I mean, you're exactly right. They sort of timed it in a way. It seemed like they're positioning themselves to take advantage of or take credit for something. That, but it just it didn't work out that way because it went too far in the other direction because these people don't really know how the economy works either. It's not just a matter of money and inflation or consumer prices. They have no feeling for the economy whatsoever. And that's why we keep doing this time and time again. Go all the way back to the first QEs in 2008 and 2009. People forget, for example, the first taper was actually in the summer of 2009. And we think this taper is coming along rapidly, as you said earlier. That very first taper was two months. Hmm. The, the U.S. Treasury part of QE1 was tapered in two months from August to October of 2009. And then it just abruptly stopped. And the same kinds of things happened. Well, the Fed said, well, we thought inflation, we thought we'd done enough to create a recovery and get the economy out of its deflationary potential and into some inflationary potential. And then 2010 happened and 2010 became 2011 with a second QE where it became very clear, even to the Fed, thus the second QE, that it wasn't that they headed off inflation before it got started. They had never solved the deflationary or depressionary conditions to begin with. And so that's what we're really talking about here. It's not really so much inflation, is that the monetary system is telling us once again, like 2008, 2009, or 2011, or 2015, or 2018, 2019, we see this again where everybody gets excited about inflation, but the monetary system, the bond market, all the curves, they tell us there's no reason to. In fact, the risks are all stacking up to the downside, which doesn't just mean that consumer price indexes, their increases are going to roll over, or their annual rates of change are going to decelerate. It means that the entire global economy is in danger of suffering a setback, which euro dollar curve inversion means at some point, these hawks at the Federal Reserve are going to have to become doves all over again, which kind of goes way too far in the wrong direction for the Fed to take credit for choking off inflation. The title of your article that we're working off of is called Taper Rejection. It was posted on the 15th of December. You're riffing off of Taper Tantrum. We called it, it's not a tantrum, it was a celebration starting in May 2013 that the global economy didn't need this sugar rush anymore, that we, the Federal Reserve believed the future was going to be a better one, so the bond market was celebrating. So taper celebration, but you're saying, no, this is a taper rejection, and it's not just your opinion, you were mentioning it, Jeff, it's the markets that are telling us the story. I have noticed in the last few days that the... United Kingdom, Switzerland, Japan, that their bonds, 10-year bonds, have all taken a turn towards the bullish. So prices are rising, yields are falling. We've talked about the euro-dollar curve inversion. Can you give us an update on that? Can you give us an update on the U.S. Treasury curve? I've heard that the two-year is doing some interesting things. Is that where you're coming from when it comes to markets are rejecting taper optimism? 
Yeah, I think, you you know, you, you came up with that term on the show, you know, taper celebration, because that's exactly what it was back in 2013. You know, we want to see rates rise. We want to see nominal rate, nominal yields go up, because that means the market is saying we don't want to own safe liquid instruments. We want to own risky nominal opportunities in the real economy. That's recovery. So when bond yields rose, especially when we're talking about bond yields, we mean it's particularly the long end. So the middle of the curve on out. When those longer term bond yields rose in 2013, that was the market saying, hey, Ben Bernanke, we don't necessarily fully agree with your optimism behind taper, but we think there's a chance you might be right this time. And so it's it's not completely impossible that uh, we're going to be stuck in a deflationary mess forever. So for a couple months in 2013, the bond market got to be a little bit more optimistic and yield curves rose, the, yield, or the nominal yields rose, the yield curve steepened. And it was a celebration. It was great. It was terrific. That's not what happened in 2021. In fact, the taper celebration wasn't really about taper. The celebration was all in the first couple months of the year. It was more of a vaccine, you know, fiscal celebration than anything else. And as you point out time and time again, Emil, of all of the reflation periods that we've been in, 2021's was the worst. And it wasn't even close, right? It was the smallest, flattest, most pitiful reflationary trade in the entire last 15 years, which is sort of weird because the amount of stimulus has been or the amount of things going right was supposed to be everything. It's everything was supposed to be in the right direction. Now, I want to draw a distinction between the economic reflation, which ostensibly was the biggest ever in history because we went from almost a zero in economic activity due to the lockdowns to something from death and no pulse to being alive. So that was the biggest rate of change. But we were referring to monetary reflation, right? The bond market, the euro dollar system, all these measures that we talk about from time to time, those are the ones that said, meh. It's about long run potential based Mm -hmm. on what's happened, what's happened to this point. The markets are saying, we look at the monetary conditions, we look at the economic conditions that are related to the monetary conditions, and we project our long run potential based on that. And if the long run potential includes a high degree of demand for safe and liquid, that's not a very fruitful long run potential. And so we're talking about reflation in the bonds markets. That's what we're saying, that if the Fed is successful at QE and the bank reserves are actually money, we would expect bonds at the long end to sell off because they would say this stuff really works. The long run potential is really good and fruitful. Therefore, why would how would we want a 10 year treasury? That's not going to pay as much. We can get much better risk-adjusted returns in the real economy. So that's the taper celebration. The taper celebration is, yes, Ben Bernanke, we agree with you mildly that there's a chance the future could be good. But that never happened in 2021. Even to the, you know, just to a, a small extent, there was a backup in yields. The yield curve steepened a little bit, but it was so modest. It was so mild. And it was so, you know, underwhelming given what was supposed to be going right at that time. Remember early 2021, everything was supposed to be going in the right direction at the same time. And the market was still extremely skeptical, which brings us to the other part of this taper rejection, which is when you say that people say, oh, well, of course, rates didn't rise. The Federal Reserve is buying up all the bonds. So the rates couldn't rise. The Fed is the one in controlling interest rates. And because the Fed wants interest rates to be low, they're going to be low. And so that's how we explain low. We can dismiss this negative signal from the bond market because the Fed has poisoned the well or it has rigged the system so that we don't get a pure signal, which is the real news this week in terms of double taper and the lack of tantrum is that, no, we see in real time once again 
the bond market absolutely proving without beyond any shadow of a doubt that it, that it does not depend upon the Fed's buying at all to set prices. Because remember what's just happened. We had not only, you know, the announcement that taper, you're right, it was November 3rd when the Fed first announced taper. Barely a month and a half later, six weeks later, now we're doubling the pace of taper. And oh, by the way, the other part of the, the double of taper yesterday was also the Fed saying, we now expect not one, but three rate hikes in 2022. So <laughs> according to, uh, by all conventional logic, the Fed's going to be terminating its huge QE purchases much sooner than anyone thought. And it's going to get into rate hikes much quicker and much faster than anyone believed. And yet the long-term end of the yield curve completely ignored all of it. Didn't matter that the Fed's going to not buy any more bonds and notes. It doesn't matter that the Fed's going to be, at least the Fed right now, thinks it's going to be hiking rates three times, maybe more when we get into 2023. The long-term end of the yield curve not only didn't sell off, it's actually prices are up today, the day after the double taper. So no tantrum whatsoever. Now, no celebration. This has become an outright taper rejection, which goes along with all the other things that we've said, including the Eurodollar futures curve inversion, which says basically the same message. You guys think you're going to be hawkish at the Fed. We believe that at some point you're not going to be hawkish. And it's going to be at some point before you actually think that's possible. So taper rejection. Sometimes on Twitter, at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP, at Emil Kalinowski, sometimes people will complain well, your prediction is wrong. And then they'll list all this. And I enjoy those because I always respond, well, thank you, except we don't make predictions on this show. So you must have been watching another show. That being said, Jeff, you don't have to comment on it because I understand you're, you don't want to make predictions and then be held to account for them. Just, in, you know, but the three rate hikes in 2022, gosh, I would like to put a friendly wager on that. Is there a market out there, Jeff? <laughs> Which yeah, way you can wager on this? <laughs> yeah, you, I would. People are wagering on it right now in the December 2024 contract. That's where the, the kink <laughs> in the Eurodollar curve is. And they're saying, okay, you guys think you're going to do three rate hikes? Uh, we think you're going to be turning around before then. If not, maybe never getting to rate hikes to begin with. Yeah, no, that would be so surprising. I'm, in, I'm imagining a 2015, 2014 16 sort of like one rate hike because they're forced to because they said they would because they're being boxed in by their narrative but i you know half-hearted half-hearted that they'll be pushing through three of them next year we'll see jeff taper taper rejection december 15th 2021 at alhambra investments any final words on this particular article yeah, just as you always say, Emil, it's not just the one thing. It's not just long-term treasury yields that have given us this taper rejection. It's everything. And it's not just everything. It's one after another, after another, after another that says the reasons the Fed is tapering. Remember, tapering, QE, bank reserves, these are really irrelevant. But the reasons the Fed is tapering because it thinks inflation is about to be under control, all of these markets uniformly and more strongly and more strenuously are saying, not only do we believe this is not inflation, we think the risks of the opposite are rising into next year. So the Fed is once again going to be tapering just as everything turns in the wrong direction. Well, At least that's the balance of probability. In part two, we're going to talk about the latest inflation reading or the latest consumer price increase reading in the United States. So stick around. You've been taking 
On December 10th, the Bureau for Labor Statistics reported that in the United States, consumer prices increased 6.8% year over year. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I have Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners, on the line with me. And I assume that, Jeff, you're going to admit that we are in an inflationary hellstorm and that you, well, that's what people are expecting you to say, right? That we are in one of these things. But guess what, ladies and gentlemen, if you've been watching the show, you know that Jeff is going to work his way out of this box. He's the Harry Houdini of macroeconomics. 6.8% increase year over year in consumer prices. How's he going to get out of this one? And end his article by saying, many people won't want to believe it, but yes, even this epic CPI high and all its related data actually fit the profile of a disinflationary, deflationary outlook. Harry Houdini. Yeah, and I, you know, Emil, it's, it starts with the fact that I, this is not inflation. People think that I'm saying that consumer prices are not rising or that I'm trying to get into some kind of argument about semantics. If I don't call it inflation, that lets me off the hook for CPIs that are the highest in 40 years, right? And that's not what we're saying. We're saying, yes, consumer prices have gone up and that consumer prices, at least according to the CPI, have gone up the most over the last year than at any other point in the last four decades. Since going back before anybody knew Alan Greenspan's name, which I believe I wrote in that article, which was, was such a wonderful thing when people didn't know Alan Greenspan or the Federal Reserve Chairman's name. But I digress. So I'm not making a semantical argument that this is an inflation that somehow lets me off the hook. What I'm saying is that there's not a monetary reason for consumer prices to have risen. And because there isn't a monetary reason, this isn't inflation. Consumer prices are being driven by something else. And we also know from the monetary system in the fixed income markets that because it's been the consumer prices are being driven by something else, when we say it's not going to last, that also has a very particular meaning. How does that end? And it doesn't usually end well, especially when we see embedded within these consumer price index increases, the main component being oil or actually gasoline prices. So all of the ingredients, it's not, you know, it's not semantics. It's not inflation versus quote unquote inflation. It is some kind of trick to pull, you know, pull the wool over people's eyes and say, oh, I'm really wrong, but I'm, I'm actually going to try to pretend I'm right. It's about understanding causes and effects so that we can understand what we should expect in the future. You know, why is the bond market so pessimistic with CPI so high? Why are inflation expectations in the bond market so low and going lower over the past six weeks, despite the fact that CPIs are the highest in 40 years? There's a reason for it, and it's not some mind trick. There's actual legitimate macroeconomic substance to the argument that we're making. I want to do a quick digression. Inflation expectations. You just mentioned the bond market. There are other inflation expectations by professional economic forecasters. Well, we don't think very highly of those forecasts. Other people do. Orthodox economics does. But then there's also the household surveys, Jeff. And so we did have some by the Michigan consumer, uh, you know, inflation expectation for the year ahead. They didn't change month to month, right? They're still at 4.9% year to year, one year ahead, and 3% for the next five years. They didn't change with the latest readings, the preliminary readings, which just came out. We did have in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, those inflation expectations did increase from the previous month for November. They're now up to 6% for the year ahead. So you mentioned inflation expectations in the bond market 
you're emphasizing those, but you're not emphasizing household expectations. Why? No, it's not that I'm not emphasizing. We just haven't got to them. And, and okay. I would actually overemphasize the household expectations because what they're actually telling us is the same thing the bond market is. Households do not expect consumer prices to remain at these levels for very long. As you just referenced, the uh, University of Michigan survey. Yes, yes. Less, it's about 5% in the one year four, but only 3% in the five year. And 3% is less than the five year expectation had been in 2014 and before. So even households are saying on average, yeah, we think consumer prices are going to be high, but eventually they're going to return to where they had been over the last you know, couple of years. So that's not inflation either. That's households saying we, we're paying more at the gasoline pump, we're paying more for groceries, but we don't think it's going to last. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York survey, same type of thing. Their numbers are higher, but they're also upside down too. The one-year inflation rate is above 6% Six. because people match their, their perceptions with what they're paying at the pump and what the CPIs are and things like that. But there's three-year inflation expectation, I believe, is only 4% or a little bit less than 4%, which means, again, households, consumers are expecting whatever the CPIs are now, they're going to be significantly, substantially less in the future, which is the exact same expectation the bond market is showing, which is, yes, CPIs are high. But it's not because of money. It's not because this is going to be like the 1970s. There are other reasons for that. And those other reasons, by the way, are usually harmful to the economy over the intermediate term. And that, of course, by that we mean oil shocks. Anytime we ever see historically outside of something like the 1970s, you get an oil shock where gasoline prices and fuel prices in general or energy, energy prices across the board go up. It's harmful to the economy. It's deflationary over the intermediate term because it robs the economy of substantial vitality that it just cannot overcome that drag because there isn't this overwhelming flow of currency throughout the entire system to maintain the price spiral. Without that money, it becomes a negative inflation factor. We're going to talk about gasoline and how it's powering these inflation numbers. I just wanted to go back quickly to the Michigan survey, University of Michigan, and just point out that the year ahead forecast did have a step up in May. But since May and through December, during this time period when we've been recording these highest ever in many decades or generations, CPI changes, we've essentially been unchanged in household expectations. They've gone from 4.6% in May to 4.9% for the year ahead, despite these incredible increases. For the five-year ahead, there has been no trickle-up. It's just been at 3% from May through December. It's sort of stepped up in May from like 27 to 3%. But essentially, they're not being convinced. It's not accelerating like we are seeing in the actual CPI. We saw a step up and then stability since May all the way through December's reading. And it's, it's weird. It's, it's actually eerie how, that, how closely that matches the longer run bond market inflation expectations. You look at the five-year, five-year forward rate, for example, it is almost exactly how you describe it of the University of Michigan's five-year forward inflation expectation, where it didn't really rise all that much from 2020 lows. We're still way less than we were. At least the expectation is the long run inflation expectation of the bond market is much less than it was you know, five, six, seven years ago, never really got all that high to begin with. And it didn't really change over the last six months. So it's inconsistent, you know, consumers, bond market, they're all inconsistent with the idea that this is inflation. Yes, consumer prices have gone up, 
but neither consumers nor bond traders believe, and bond traders, by the way, are not just bond traders, they're the actual monetary system. Everybody seems to get the picture outside of the mainstream media anyway, that this is not something that's going to last. Jeff, did I tell everyone that the article we're working off of is the higher the CPI, the less for inflation posted on the 10th of December at Alhambra Investments? I don't remember if I did, but in that article, there's a quote and you say, what is the deal with consumer prices? Given a single word to describe it, gasoline. And then you've got two graphs immediately after that, which the audience can see right now, which shows CPI, just the headline number, and then CPI energy. And you can see how they're, I couldn't tell you which one is which, right? They look identical. And then the next graph right below that, we segue from CPI energy to CPI motor fuel. It's a little bit more pronounced, the motor fuel, but we can see a correlation. And Jeff, are you saying then causation? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think everybody knows that the, the biggest component of however you want to term it, consumer price increases, acceleration, whatever you want to call it, Everybody knows it's, it's gasoline prices. Everybody knows that when they go to fill up their vehicles, they're paying a hell of a lot more than they were a year ago or even just six months ago. So they can feel the consumer price increases and they know that a big, big healthy chunk of it or big unhealthy chunk of it is due to that factor primarily. We've got three more graphs coming up and they all show the same measures. They're all going to show all other prices, and we're, what we're looking at right now are CPI contributions year over year for the last several months going all the way back to, the, to January of 2021. And so we're looking at all other prices, and then we're looking at two specific categories, cars, which you've broken down into new vehicles and used cars and trucks. And then our second category is energy, which is other energy, energy services, and gasoline. And what you do with each of these three graphs is you, you put each of these categories, other energy and vehicles on the bottom, so we can sort of better appreciate the, the difference, the, the increase, the component, the, the oomph behind each of these categories. And the first one you show us is energy. And so we see a big, big surge, Jeff, in uh, the most recent reading, November. November in particular, right? I mean, energy, mm -hmm. going back to around March and April, Yep. has become a more a higher and higher component of these annual increases in the CPI, which makes sense because that's when oil prices really started to rebound and then stay higher. And, and then people probably started to notice that they were paying more at the gasoline pump for filling up their vehicles. But it really made a huge contribution in November, even more so than it had at any point up until this month or, the, or up until last month. So energy prices, or at least gasoline prices, according to the CPI bucket, really spiked in November. It really had an impact, at least November, compared to any other month during this, quote unquote, inflationary period. So that was one big reason why the CPI had accelerated, even from where it had been the middle part of this year, from June, July, and August, and even September to a little bit, where it had been around 5%, a little bit higher, now up to almost 7%. Most of that increase was just gasoline prices. Now we're looking at vehicles. You put vehicles on the bottom so we can track it more easily. And again, we see November a substantial increase in vehicle-related prices. What can we learn from this graph? Well, what we can learn is for the two of those segments together, those two specific parts of the CPI bucket, cars and energy, made up 58% of the 6.8% annual rate increase. So those two segments alone accounted for, you know, what almost two thirds of the increase. And so 
you know, when you show the one graph where the all other prices are on the bottom, you can clearly see that the prices of everything else in the consumer bucket, if we took away energy and cars, which I know you can't do, but if you took away those two segments, the inflation rate, the CPI rate over November 2021 versus November 20 would have been less than 3%. And not only that, it has decelerated over the last couple months. So it's really most of the emphasis in the CPI, most of the acceleration in the annual rate of the CPI over the last couple of months has been those two things alone. And the key is, Jeff, as you make the point often in your writing, I'm struggling, aren't I, Jeff? Not really. Uh, I should tell people, I haven't had my sherry this morning, my Christmas you know eggnog. Is, whenever we talk about inflation, it, get, it, it should be really easy. As we talked about in the last segment, this should be, hey, is, the, is there too much money or is there not too much money? What's really what we should be talking about? But because we can't really talk about it, at least the mainstream media or the mainstream you know, the way the public is told to think about inflation, we can't really think about these things or discuss them in any sort of straightforward fashion. And on top of that, inflation is an extremely emotional issue, as we've said time and time again, and understandably so, because if you're paying more money at the pump, you're paying more at the grocery store, you're not making any more money from your job, you are substantially worse off for what has happened. Now, we're not denying that that's the case. What we're trying to do is help people understand why. Why are you substantially worse off? Why are you paying more at the pump? Why are you paying more at the grocery store or any place else or at the used car lot or the new car lot? Because we want people to know to identify the real factors at work here so that we can figure these things out. If we just blame the Fed nakedly and think, oh, QE, money printing, bank reserves, that's counterproductive because we're chasing something that isn't real. We're trying to get people to understand. We understand that consumer prices have gone up and that has created a significant hardship on most people, but we need to understand why that is. And when we look at the CPI this way, we're not trying to say, oh, we were wrong about inflation. Inflation actually happened. What we're trying to say is that, no, exactly what we, we told you was gonna happen has happened, which is consumer prices are being squeezed by a supply shock, not because of money printing. And the supply shock is most evident and most visible in two places. This just so happened to be the same two places that have contributed the most to the CPI increases. We know for a fact that companies are not producing a satisfactory enough number of vehicles, which has meant most people in lieu of being able to buy a new car have been flooding the used car lots and paying any price for new used vehicles. And the other thing is energy. We know for a fact, not just in the United States, but around the world, that energy producers have quite intentionally kept the supply of crude and other energy products, distillations and things like that, they've kept them purposefully low. So in these two major components of the CPI increases, we easily find supply reasons for them, not money reasons. And so again, what we're really doing here is trying to sort out for you, as the bond market has already done, it's not inflation as a semantics argument, it's this is inflation or it's not inflation. It's not inflation, then consumer prices are being driven by supply factors. As you just said, right in the article, quote, why so much pain from mostly these narrow slices, supply, 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 you said, and we just showed those two graphs showing the supply reduction in assemblies and industrial production in the mining, quarrying, oil sector. There's one, other sec there's one other solution to this, right? If it's not the Federal Reserve that's creating too much money and therefore causing this inflation, maybe it is the federal government giving away too much stimulus and destroying the currency. 
And perhaps that was the case, but then we've got these two graphs that you show us, Jeff, one about the CPI core, and then the next one, CPI services. And now we're seeing the third camel hump. The first two camel humps were associated with the, the helicopter payments, but those are waning now. So we shouldn't blame current increases in consumer goods on what the Federal Reserve, uh, federal government did in January, March, and April, right? Yeah, but they still show up. You're right. The, but they still show up in the annual rate of increases, right? Because we're comparing prices in November of 2021 to prices in November of 2020. In between that year are those the second larger camel hump, as you described. And that's a really good point, Emil, because the third factor, which, which has made the consumer price, the annual rates of change in consumer price indexes so high, is the what happened to all prices, especially in April, May, June, that, that time period. After the second helicopter was delivered, Americans in particular went absolutely crazy spending on goods at a time when supply was constrained almost universally across the board. So we had the greatest imbalance between demand and supply during those particular months. And that's where you see the heaviest influence or the camel hump that you call it across a broad swath of consumer prices. But as you also point out, since then, since around May, June, that camel hump has started to decline, especially the further you get away from goods, the further you get away from used and used cars, as well as energy, you see less and less and less acceleration or even increases in something like services, for example. And the services, people might remember, we are a service-oriented economy. And so services isn't some niche small part of the global economy. It's in a tremendous part. And we see almost no inflation, no consumer price acceleration whatsoever outside of those narrow segments. So it all adds up to these three things. We have a supply shock in those three ways, which is energy prices, used and new vehicle prices, and then the Uncle Sam helicopter from earlier in the year. That's where the consumer price increases have come from. And even as high as the CPI got in November, it's still those three things. It's not money printing, it's not inflation, it's supply shock. That's it for me, Jeff, for this particular episode. Ladies and gentlemen, you can go to Alhambra Investments. The higher the CPI, the less for inflation, December 10th. Jeff, are you ready to move on to part three C? Or is there anything else we need to tell the audience before we go? The only other part we should reiterate and highlight is that when we, again, gasoline prices, oil price supply shock, is not usually good for the economy over the intermediate run. So yes, you get the consumer prices that accelerate, but usually they, they come down very quickly because it normally, historically speaking, it puts the economy into recession, or at least it correlates very strongly with future recession. We're gonna talk about wholesale inventory, other kind of inventories in the United States, and what that might mean for future economic activity next. Wholesale inventory, that is the key topic of this article that we're going to be talking about. And it's very interesting, ladies and gentlemen. Don't go away. I know it sounds not interesting, but it is. Jeff Snyder, the head of global research, will make it interesting for us. Head of global research for Alhambra Investments. The article was posted on the 10th of December. Sure, tomorrow the CPI, but future CPIs in today's inventory... And we are starting with wholesale inventories in October 2021, which increased by the largest monthly amount on record, Jeff. 
That sounds very concerning, but later you'll tell us, well, retail sales did very well too. So maybe nothing to worry about, but all right, tell us about wholesale inventories. Well, I think a lot of it is that it's maybe the data is contrary to people's expectations because, you know, you still see social media lit up occasionally with, you know, empty grocery pictures of empty grocery store shelves. You see, you know, car dealer lots that are completely devoid of any product. And I think the impression of, especially with consumer prices rising and everything you hear about in the mainstream media, the general impression is that there is a economy-wide, a global shortage of goods out there, that there's really nothing flowing. That it's really, you know, we hear about supply chain issues and everything else. It's really hard for companies and retailers and wholesalers in particular to even obtain the basic minimum levels of product. And the data shows that, yes, that is the case, but only in certain segments, which happen to be the same certain segments we just talked about in the previous episode, going through the CPI and what's causing the CPI mostly to go, or what's mostly causing the CPI to go up. But when you adjust for those, when you look at inventory outside of oil and vehicles, what you find is that no, on the contrary, the amount of goods isn't just flowing. It is it is flowing at a rate we've never, or at a level we've never seen before. The amount of goods flowing through the U.S. economy is absolutely tremendous. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't kinks or problems here or there, because it is a lot of goods for the supply chain to handle, even on a good day in a healthy economy. But there are goods coming into the system, and they're coming into at a, a record rate. 2.3% increase in October compared to September, the single biggest monthly rise going back to 1992. That's inventory. Wholesale sales likewise jumped. Similar 2.2% increase month over month in October. And as you write, at first glance, the economy does seem to be red hot. You've got a great graph here that shows a 45 degree angle or so for both sales and inventories for wholesale. Now, as you just alluded to, we're going to dive into the nooks and crannies of these numbers and try to tease out some more. And the first thing you do and bring to our attention is that we want to remove some of these categories like petroleum, perhaps. And so in the next graph, you've got wholesale sales excluding petroleum. And then you compare it to wholesale inventories excluding petroleum. And there's a difference here at the very end, right? Whereas before, these two lines were in lockstep, accelerating high up into the stratosphere. Now one of these lines is a little bit lagging behind. Yeah, and that's really the part where we're really focused on, right? Because traditionally speaking, the business cycle has included a heavy, heavy contribution from the inventory cycle. And the inventory cycle, quite briefly, is simply that companies hold inventory because they think the revenue prospects in general are going to be relatively constant. And then if it happens to fall off or something changes in their sales level, they get stuck with too much inventory, which causes them to start ordering less, which causes producers to start producing less, which causes everybody to start hiring and working less. And then all of a sudden an inventory cycle becomes the business cycle as everybody starts, you know, they put the halt on it, the accordion effect, so to speak. And what we're seeing is that in any situation, even over the last 15 years where inventory outgrows sales, that usually corresponds to what we see in the real economy, these euro dollar cycles where the general economy starts to fall off and it's, it becomes the self-reinforcing vicious cycle where inventory contributes negatively to an already developing downturn. So what we're really looking at, you know, setting aside social media, setting aside these mainstream perceptions of a shortage of goods, 
What we want to know is what is the chances that we get we get into a situation where there might be too much inventory? And that's kind of where, where you're getting into, Emil, here is that we're starting to see, you know, sales and inventory have been relatively balanced, which is a good thing. That means things are going well. But if we start to see the inventory grow faster than sales, then that becomes the the beginning parts of our concern. Which is what we saw in 2018. You can't miss it on this graph. We see the globally synchronized growth turning into globally synchronized slowdown. And that was, of course, the fourth euro dollar dollar shortage, credit collateral shortage, money shortage. And we could see it here real time in real economic activity. And the, yeah, and the funny thing is, right, I mean, just to you know, interrupt for a second, you know, the funny thing is, that as sales fell off and slowed down and started to contract, inventories didn't. So mm-hmm. businesses were responding to that in the same way they do historically, which is businesses are generally optimistic. They generally think, okay, we didn't have enough sales this month, but it'll come back next month or the month after. So we're not going to change our inventory or our hiring practices just yet. We're going to wait to see if the economy does come back. Maybe it's just a small soft patch that we'll just work through. And so 2018, you remember what, you know, 2018. Jay Powell, the media, economists, everybody was incredibly optimistic. So even as they saw their sales slow down and turn lower, they kept on ordering inventory because they believed what they saw on TV. They believed what Jay Powell was saying about growth and acceleration. And so they kept piling in inventory, even though sales fell off until they got to the point where they said, you know, we've been seeing softening sales for a while. We've been hearing Jay Powell talk about acceleration. We're just not seeing it. That's it. We're not ordering any more inventory until we rebalance. And that's when in 2019, especially the post-2018 landmine, where you had the economy really in the U.S. as well as around the rest of the economy or rest of the world, that's where the global economy really turned into its globally synchronized downturn. Once the inventory cycle in the U.S. started to match global conditions that have been developing throughout 2018. So businesses, we expect them to be generally optimistic to say, okay, inventory is rising faster and sales are starting to slow down, but maybe we'll just, we'll ride this thing out for the time being. You have to wonder in the 2021 case with everything being so artificially high, sales being artificially high, inventory being so artificially high, maybe businesses are maybe a little bit more of an itchy trigger finger with inventory this time around because we're not talking about 2018 levels of an inventory accumulation imbalance. We're talking about something much, much bigger than that. We're going to take a look at both sales and inventories for wholesalers, excluding motor vehicles and petroleum products in a second. But Jeff, you just said sales inventories are so artificially high in 2021. Why are they artificially high? Well, Uncle Sam for one, because he helicoptered a bunch of money into the economy earlier in this year. But also, you know, there are still some some changes, some behavioral changes left over from the initial parts of the pandemic where we look at spending, for example, retail sales, wholesale sales. The goods economy is historically high through the roof, but service spending is not. Service spending has yet to recover its February, February 2020 level. And I don't think it will, even in the November numbers, which will be released in a couple of weeks, will still be behind. So not only are service spending behind compared to where it was pre-COVID, it's way behind where it would have been had there been no COVID. So Americans are spending a lot on goods, but spending so much less on services. And overall, consumer spending itself is actually falling behind, not just where it should be, but also where it would have been if this artificial, uh, quote unquote, stimulus actually had stimulated the real economy. So 
we have that part of the goods economy, which people, I think, intuitively understand this isn't real. This isn't going to last forever. Not only have the helicopters stopped, we know that the economy is kind of messed up. It's misoriented from where it used to be. And at any point, if Americans start to spend on services like they used to, it's very likely to come at the expense of spending on goods. So as high as good spending has been over the, the six or seven month period, you know, the chances of it staying at that level are getting slimmer and slimmer by the day. And I think the, the supply chain knows that. And you balance that, that belief with what actual inventory is coming into the, into, especially into the U.S., outside of petroleum, outside of especially new vehicles. I think businesses might be less likely to be so generally optimistic about maintaining a high inventory pace. Okay, let's move to the next graph then, just as you said. So now wholesale sales and inventories, but now we're removing petroleum and motor vehicles, and it's now even more pronounced, the, the detachment, the decoupling between sales and inventories that we saw in the very first graph, which looked like a booming economy. You take those two sectors out, which coincidentally is what's driving inflation, as we just talked about in our previous episode. And I guess the part, the, the cons you're worried that we may be seeing what we saw in 2018, the initial stages of it, where eventually, eventually sales will level off, but inventories are still in that trajectory. And then we'll have to make reverse that. And as you said, the, the bats part of the self-reinforcing cycle. If you're a wholesaler today, you think, well, sales are relatively robust. If you're a wholesaler, you're not in the petroleum or the vehicle parts of the economy. You think, well, sales are relatively robust, but we're finally starting to see inventory outpace sales. And you just have to wonder if you're a wholesaler and you think, you know, this isn't going to last because we're the historical, the sales volume is at historical highs. And it doesn't seem like everything's set up for it to last because of everything that's artificial about the the trend over the, the last eight months, you know, with inventory coming, inventory that's already here, as well as who knows how much inventory that's still coming, that maybe that wholesalers and retailers have had doubled and triple ordered just to get product on the store shelves before Christmas. It might be that we have a very quick turnaround from an inventory accumulation to an inventory overhang. And I got to believe that is one factor, not just weighing on, the, you know, some of the economic numbers, is particularly you know, soft sentiment numbers and PMIs around the world, but also maybe what's weighing up, weighing on the bond market. The bond market is very much attuned to real factors in the real economy, which would be if there's less monetary flows between the United States and the rest of the world, because, you know, retailers and wholesalers have really started to say, hold up on the production. Let's see if we can sell what we got before we start producing more. If we aren't already seeing in the bond market, the, the skepticism, the pessimism that's building in these curves, related to these inventory, these specific inventory numbers. And then add that to what we saw on the CPI, which was being driven largely by an oil supply shock or you know, prices at the gasoline pump. And it, 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 these two things together, they don't add up to inflation, they add up to rising downturn potential, a downside risks across the entire global economy. The business inventory numbers came out for October, just the other day, I think it was yesterday, month over month for in October, 1.2% increase. In September, it was a 0.8% increase. So an acceleration there. The year over year number also shows a, an acceleration. Whereas in September, it was a 7.5% increase. In October, it was a 7.8% increase in business inventories. 
And Emil, just to be clear, business when you say business inventories, you mean business inventories, which includes the entire supply chain. So you have retail inventories plus wholesale inventories plus manufacturers inventory. So it's inventory at all stages of production across the entire supply chain. So it's manufacturers as well as trade. And I think that 1.2% monthly increase in October was the highest in a very long time as well. So driven largely by what happened on the wholesale at the wholesale level, we are seeing inventory accumulate across the entire supply chain. And the, the issue really is demand. The issue really is sales. Will sales continue to be historically high in the goods economy? And if so, does the inventory still match the demand there? And if sales and demand does fall off because it was artificial, because it was a product of all of these non-economic issues across the economy, what does that do to the at least the rest of the goods economy producing goods for this artificial demand bump? You know, how does that contribute to the economic circumstances of 2022? And it's not really anything good especially when you consider the U.S. goods economy is about the only bright spot in the entire global economic system. It's really the only place you can look at and say, hey, things look relatively robust here. So if the global economy loses that capacity, loses this insane level of goods demand because inventory is mismatched to it, then what does the entire global economic case look like not just 2022, but going forward beyond that. Well, this is the season for bright lights. So you just mentioned one, economic goods demand in the United States. Okay, that's from the economic side. Jeff, is there a bright spot in the monetary realm? Eurodollar futures, no. Flattening of the U.S. Treasury yield curve, no. Real rates, no. Swap spreads, is where is there a bright spot that suggests... Reflation, recovery, ongoing, accelerating. Are you aware of one? The only thing that you might say that there could be some resemblance to a booming economy is the stock market, right? Because not only would most people say the stock market represents the economy, that's what we're supposed to believe. And the Federal Reserve tries to get you to believe. So if you want to pick the one bright spot, it's the stock market, which is record highs, post record highs, seemingly impenetrable rises, gains at a 45, it goes always goes up at a 45 degree angle. So if you want to believe the stock market represents anything close to reality, there's your one thing. But as you just said, Emil, everything else, everything else has said the exact opposite. Not only are we not seeing inflation, we're seeing downside risks emerge to the entire global economic case in 2022. Well, Jeff, this is going to be the last show of 2021. Do you have any parting thoughts for the audience? Before we uh, before we sign off, well, I wish we would have much better news. One of these days, we could send you know we could sign off on a year and say these are all the good things that happen, and they're legitimately good things that have happened. People believe that I'm a doom and gloomer by nature, and that's just simply not the case. If we ever do get this monetary system fixed, there will be you and I will have a podcast where we will be the most happy, optimistic people that everybody that anybody has ever seen. And people tuning into our show will wonder what the hell we've done with Jeff and Emil because it'll be completely different. The problem is 2021 was not that year. Unfortunately for us, unfortunately from the world, not much really changed that was good and a whole bunch that might have changed in 2020 that had made a bad situation worse. If we look at the yield curve, as we said in the previous segment, these reflationary yield curve changes get smaller and smaller all the time look at the Eurodollar futures curve, look at the monetary system, look at the tick data, 
any number of things that was starting to emerge now that we've come out of the shadow of the supply shock earlier in the year and becoming more, the uh, future becoming more and more clear as it is free from that artificial influence, there's a very real possibility that the 2020s, generally speaking, end up being significantly, substantially worse than they had been around the world than in the 2010s. So you know, ending our show on that kind of a message. Did you, the whole decade, Jeff, people, seems like, uh, you didn't- Torture, punishment. <laughs> Why, are you sure you didn't misstate something? Did you mean to say 2022? The whole decade, 2020s, you're worried about them, not worse than the 2010s. Yeah, so 2022 starts off on the wrong foot. And unfortunately, that's more representative of what maybe what the rest of the decade, or at least what we can see of the long run potential to today is what it seems to look like. You know, in one sense, it's better than it was in 2020, but that's no standard of comparison. Everything looked completely awful forever in 2020. And 2021 was supposed to be the year. This year was supposed to be the year where we not only got back to normal, we did too much. We went way far beyond normal into the inflationary side of things. And as we, we look around the landscape, we see that so much incredible skepticism, it doesn't make it into the mainstream media, of course, but so much grounded skepticism and pessimism that just you know, it makes you shake your head. And like I said, I, one of these years, we're going to end our show with a retrospective that is completely happy. We'll, we'll have drinks in hand and a celebration across the world. It's just 2021 was not that year. I feel it'll be the late 2020. So I'm in agreement with you that it will be a uglier decade, but hopefully just uh, a portion of it will be uglier than the 2010s and that we'll be able to identify a rebound that we've hit the bottom and now we're rebounding and heading towards something better. That's my sincere hope. As you often point out, uh, the worst case scenario would be to just continue to slog through these doldrums. I can't believe that'll happen because of the socioeconomic political consequences. It seems like people are looking for an answer and they'll keep looking for one until they find one. And it's they're agitating for it. And it's uh, I think the pressure is increasing. So it's my sincere hope that this is the last decade of the, the silent depression. Surely it must be. Surely we can't let it continue longer than that. That's my hope. And I agree with you. I, I hope that that's the case too. But, you know, it's, it's easy to be cynical given the last 15 years, especially given how, despite the last 15 years of nothing but repeated failure and repeated doldrums, as you said, nothing has changed at this point. In fact, Everybody seems to have a favorable view of QE and central banking and central bankers. In fact, even today, after 20 years of QE, all we hear is that QE is money printing and it pours trillions of dollars or trillions of currency into the real economy when none of those things are actually true. So it's easy to be cynical. I'd much rather be optimistic. It's, it's hard as for, like you, I think it's, it's hard for people to believe that's the case, but there will come a time when we will become optimistic, where we will think hey, things have finally gone right. We've finally fixed the major problems. And when we do, as you and I just talked about recently on a podcast appearance we just did last week, you know, once we fix the monetary system, I think we're going to see a period of rapid, legitimate prosperity and growth, maybe unlike we've seen in a century. And I think I legitimately hmm. believe wow. that's the case. I can see that. Yes, we were on Velina Chakarova's show, ladies and gentlemen. Please search YouTube for that. All right, Jeff. Well, I'm going to fortify some eggnog right now and, and try to become more cheerful. All right, Emil. Merry Christmas. Happy Thank New you. Year to you and to everybody else who've, uh, 
We've been sticking around through with us for what, what has it been? The last 19, 20 months almost? March May. 2020, I believe we started. Was it March or May? May. I don't remember. I think it was March. I think it was actually March. We started, you and I decided, hey, this crisis thingy has come about. Maybe we should have a podcast and start talking about it so that people can get an understanding of what's actually happening and that the Federal Reserve isn't printing money and doing all of these things. I'm a little put off the authorities haven't taken us off the air. Is it possible that we're not as important as we think we are, Jeff? Oh, absolutely. We're, we're near <laughs> as important as we would like to be. And I think that's, you know, like we said, we look forward to the day when we don't actually have a show because by, that's the day when people understand what's going on. And likely because it's been fixed, you won't need either Emil and I to try to dive deep down into the euro dollar rabbit hole and come up with some what we hope are nuggets of, and pearls of wisdom. We'll do a show about physics, math, and football and food absolutely and movies all right jeff thank you all right take care Emil.